Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard, and I am the staff pastor here at Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah. Thanks for joining me today. Glad you could be here. Well, uh, we're following along the uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints Sunday School Curriculum Schedule. That uh, Sunday School Curriculum is titled Come Follow Me which is why uh, I've named this the Come, Follow Me Bible Challenge, because the, uh, the church is going through the Old Testament this year. Next year will be the New Testament, and I'm doing what I can to come alongside and say, hey, uh, glad you're studying our book. I would like to offer my thoughts as a Bible church pastor that might you know stimulate some thinking. That, that's all this is. And so um, if that's something you're into, glad you're here. Hopefully this is helpful. And today, we are going to be covering just an amazing section of Scripture, the 40s chapters of Isaiah. Isaiah 40 to 49 is what's on the schedule for this week. And, oh man, what what a sweet, awesome, wonderful section this is. I mean, this is just an incredible section. And um, I want to start somewhere um, that we, we haven't gone to for a while. I did this more when we were... <laughs> You know, kind of at the beginning, going through the book of Genesis, I, I made some comparisons uh, to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website, the teacher's manual for this curriculum, and I haven't done that for a while, but I want to start there today. This is, uh, you know, from the official website, churchofjesuschrist.org, and this is the teacher's manual for Isaiah 40 to 49, what we are covering this week. And uh, the title for this section is Comfort Ye My People, taken from the King James, no doubt. Comfort Ye My People. Okay? And uh, I, I want to just give an overview of this first to set up the contrast of how I would approach this passage of Scripture, and um, and then we're going to look at what the text actually says. So here in this section titled Teach the Doctrine, they have a few major points. And the first one, it, the first major point under teaching the doctrine is that Jesus Christ can comfort us and give us hope. Okay, um, yeah, comfort is definitely in this passage, and so connecting this Old Testament passage about Yahweh to the person of Jesus Christ, who came, you know, seven eight hundred years after Isaiah wrote this, that is legitimate and good. Okay, yeah, Jesus Christ can comfort us and give us hope, and it's got a couple of bullet points there for how to convey that teaching to the class. And, uh, you know, it's about basically just saying, hey, Jesus is is a great comforter. Yahweh became flesh. Yahweh is Jesus. Jesus is Yahweh. And uh, he comforts people. Okay. All right. I can, I can get on board with that. Of course, there's a lot of conversation to have about, about that. But generally speaking, as a, as a bullet point, yeah, I can agree with that. Second bullet point is, ye are my witnesses. What does it mean to be the Lord's witnesses? And gives uh, some sections to read from the uh, the passage, Isaiah 40 to 49. So it gives some passages to read and, uh, you know, goes on to say, you know, we are witnesses for God. And uh, the second bullet point, I think, is, is quite interesting. Um, invite the class to imagine that they have been called to the witness stand in a court trial, 
In this trial, Jesus Christ has been charged with making the claim recorded in Isaiah 43, 11. And we can, can we hover over it? Nope, can't hover over it. Got to click it. Oh, but it pops up over here. Isaiah 43, 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. So Jesus makes that claim that he's the only Savior. And if we were called as witnesses in support of Jesus' claim, what testimony would we offer or could we offer? What evidence from our lives could we present? Okay, that's uh, a bit interesting, and we'll come back to that. And then the uh, third point to that they want the teachers to make from teaching this section is that the Lord can refine us through our afflictions. The Lord can refine us through afflictions. And it gives a little video that can be shared about God being a refiner's fire. And then it gives some additional resources here for what it means to stand as a witness. And uh, that's it. We reached the bottom. That's it. So you'll notice in here, it says nothing about um, the uniqueness of God. It said nothing about monotheism, the reality that there is but one God. It said nothing about God being unique among all of the false gods in the world. Um, It said nothing about God stating very plainly, very clearly, that he is the only one and that there is no other God. And it's interesting that that's left out because that is a major theme, not just a theme, but that is a major theme through these chapters that I'll show you here momentarily. Okay, but before we get into the uh, 40s of Isaiah, uh, those 40s chapters, I want to actually start with Psalm 115 because this is kind of the same idea, and we just came off of the Psalms. We just came out of you know a few weeks in the Psalms, and and I want to uh, read this one because we, we didn't read it during that time, and it's one of my favorites. Psalm 115, starting at verse 1, it says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nations say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them. Everyone who trusts in them. Well, here is a great section that contrasts the uniqueness and the truth of the one true God with the false nature and the limited nature of idols that are the works of man's hands and in a lot of cases the works of man's minds right i mean before something is built with man's hands that idol that false god has to be conjured up in the mind and so even if people don't carry it all the way through and and make idols out of wood or iron or silver um if they have a false notion of god in their head then they still have false worship they're still participating in false religion even if the God only exists as a figment of their imaginations. So um, here God is being contrasted, the one true God is being contrasted with the false gods by saying, look, this God is living. He created all things. 
He is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. That cannot be said of any other being. All right? There is no other being, not in this universe, and there is no other universe. (laughs) There is only one God ruling over one universe, and he is the one true God. He he's the only being of whom it could be said, he is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Uh, notice just from the beginning of this psalm, it says, um, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. What is implied here, of course, is that the one true God is not the work of man's hands. He's the creator of all things. He is in the heavens, verse 3, doing whatever he pleases. Yet the false gods are creations. So the true God is creator, and the false gods are creations, creations of man in their mind and with their hands. So that that's a very basic distinction that we have to have down when we come to understand the God of the Bible. The God who has revealed himself, the God of Scripture, he is the one true God, the creator of all things, and there is no exception. He's the creator of all things that truly exist. He's the creator of of all of those. And every other so-called God is merely just a creation, a figment, figment, figment. That's right, isn't it? For whatever reason, when I said that word, it sounded wrong. Uh, a production <laughs> of man's thoughts and or his hands, okay? So now let's get into Isaiah because we're going to see this same theme over and over and over again in the book of Isaiah. And let's start with uh, Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. It says, A voice says, Call out. Then he answered, What shall I call out? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. (laughs) It's pretty amazing. Okay, so again, we want to notice the contrast, and we can just look at verse 8 here. You've got grass withering, flowers fading. These are both creations of God. These are uh, productions of God. But when God blows upon the grass, it withers. If he wants it to be consumed, to be dried up and done away with, that's what happens, right? And we see year after year, plants dying, grass, flowers, whatever they are, they, they die, they wither up, they fly away. But in contrast to that, the word of our God stands forever. God's word does not wither, does not go away. God's word cannot be destroyed. God's word cannot be removed from the earth. God's word cannot dissolve. If God has said it, if God has spoken it, if God has uh, revealed it, it's going to last. Why? Why is that? Why, why? How? How could the word of God stand forever? Well, because when God speaks, he has great intention, doesn't he? God doesn't have these idle words and, and idle chatter like we do. But when God speaks and when God reveals, there's great intention. 
And so he's revealing something with great purpose to man, made in his image, able to understand his communication. He reveals something to man. And because God is powerful creator, the one true God over all things, he's able then to preserve that word from generation to generation. You see, he hasn't, uh, he hasn't designed grass, the same blade of grass, to exist from generation to generation. In fact, it's just so amazing how God is magnified by the ecosystem that we live in, that things do die, but they also reproduce, and, and there, are, there are new plants that come into the place of old plants, flowers fading, but new flowers coming into existence. And that, that happens over and over and over again. He didn't design creation to just stay static. He's actually more glorified through the death of plants and the rebirth of plants. It's, a, it's an amazing illustration that many Bible authors used to describe spiritual things. But when it comes to his word, he is most glorified by his word remaining and his word staying with man. And because that is his intention, and because he is all-powerful and so involved in his creation, that's what happens. Never, ever is God's word lost. Never, ever can man usurp God's authority over his word and, and circumvent the purposes of God and, and thwart God's plans and make the word of God just be like Swiss cheese taking certain parts out of it and, and just leaving an incomplete Bible. That, that doesn't happen. The Word of God stands forever because God is able to make it stand forever, and that's His purpose. That's His, his intention. And that's what the author's communicating here. That's what Isaiah is communicating. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of our God stands forever. All right? Well, let's look at Isaiah 42.8. That's the next one, just one verse. Um, real, real quick, the book of Isaiah in this section is kind of like an amazing mountain range. You, you read through chapters you know, 40 to 49, that's the, the section for this week, and it's kind of like exploring the, the Wasatch Range, the Rocky Mountains, you know, the, the Andes, the Alps, it's kind of like that, the Himalayas. <laughs> and so what I'm just showing you here is just some of the most amazing peaks along the way. But there's so much great stuff. It's such an, a fun adventure uh, through this section. It, it's just amazing. Okay, so I'm just taking you to the next peak. That's all I wanted to say. Isaiah 42.8. God says, I am Yahweh, the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Now, that's pretty interesting. He will not give his glory to another, and he won't give his glory to those false gods, the works of man's hands. Well, why is this important? What relevance is there in this? Um, I want to point out, I want to cross-reference with uh, John 17. In John chapter 17, we have this great, unique capturing of Jesus's prayer. This is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And, and Jesus is praying to the Father. The Son is praying to the Father. And it's preserved for us. The Apostle John was inspired to preserve this prayer of Jesus. And look at this. As we consider what Jesus said, 
It says, uh, John 17, 1, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Okay, now catch this, verse 5. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And what does it say in Isaiah 42, 8? I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. Now that's quite interesting. I will not give my glory to another, Yahweh says. And yet Jesus is here saying that he and the Father shared in the same glory before the world was. Before creation, they existed together in the same glory. And yet, in the Old Testament... God says, I will not share my glory with another. This is one of those places where we see, okay, there's something going on here that's different. (laughs) This is just different. There is but one God, and we're going to see this pronounced quite clearly in the coming passages we're about to look at. There is only one God, and yet, even though he doesn't share his glory with another, the Father and the Son shared in this glory together before the world was, and after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And so what's happening? Well, this kind of leads us into some of that Trinitarian thought, doesn't it? That there is one God, yet we see that there are here two persons, but ultimately three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, sharing in the same glory, being referenced as God. Wow. That's incredible. There is but one Lord, and he will not share his glory with another. Yet the Father and the Son shared in that same glory before the world was. I just think that's a a really cool, amazing passage when you cross-reference it with uh, John 17. But let's keep going. This is Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. So we hit chapter 40, chapter 42. Here's 43. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant, whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. Wow. So God is here saying quite plainly, verse 10, that... There was no God before him, and there will be no God after him. Before me, there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. Now, there are some who like to uh, try to wiggle out of, of what is actually being communicated here by saying, well, this is just God declaring his greatness over other gods. He's not saying that there are literally no other gods. He's just saying, look, out of all the other gods that there are, uh, there are none that compare to him. 
all right? And, and, and you should disregard all the other gods and just focus on this one god. But that's not it, because he's saying, before me, there was no god formed. There was no god made. There was no god that came into existence before him. And of course, God, the one true God, never came into existence. He's eternal. And he also says that there will be none after him. So he's clearly talking about time here, isn't he? He's talking about in time, before him, or after him. Well, he's the one true eternal God, and so there couldn't be one before or after him because he's the only eternal. There is no other eternal. And for someone to say that, well, actually, there's there's a succession. There's a succession of gods, and one god begets another. Here, God is saying that's not a possibility. The one true Lord, Yahweh, he's saying, no, that's, that's, not, that's not possible. And there is no Savior besides me, he says. He's the only Savior. Not only is he the only God, but the good news is he's the only Savior, and he's chosen to be a Savior to those who have rebelled against him. And so that's a, uh, that's a pretty critical passage. But let's go to the next chapter, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 8. It says, Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. <laughs> God asks the question, you know, calls the people to be witnesses. Is there any other God besides me? And then, you know, he could have just left it there. But he makes this incredible statement. It's just four little words in English. What, 11 letters? Is there any other God besides me? He says, I know of none. Here God is declaring... That monotheism is true, there is but one God, and he's saying that this is true based on his own knowledge. Is God's knowledge limited in any way? The answer is no. The answer is absolutely not. God has all knowledge. He has infinite knowledge, ever-expansive knowledge, okay? He's got all the knowledge there is. And he says, based on that... There is no other God, because if there was, he would know. And he's saying, by his own knowledge, there is no other God. That's, that's tough to deal with for someone trying to make the case that our God has a God, or has a grandfather God, or, or however that works, or to say that there are multiple gods in existence. you got to deal with that passage. It's a tough one for that position. All right, Isaiah 45, 5 and 6. God says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you have not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Are you getting the point yet? God God has a, a major message he wants to convey. Besides me, there is no God, he says. When he goes on to say that there is no one besides me, this, is, of course, is in that context of there is no other God. 
Because again, some people will point to that and say, well, God says there is no one besides him. And obviously someone's reading this. Isaiah wrote this. There are people besides God. And so he's not saying he's the only God. He's just saying he's the only one you should pay attention to. He's the only one that man has to do with or something like that. That is just not it. That's an abuse of this section where God is saying over and over and over again that the works of man's hands are false gods. There are all kinds of false gods out there, but there's only one true God. There's only one real God. He is Yahweh, and there is no other. He says that twice in this passage, the beginning of verse 5 and the end of verse 6. I am Yahweh, and there is no other. Continuing on in chapter 45, verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens... He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, Yahweh, and there is none else. (laughs) He is the Lord and there is none else. Notice this little phrase here at the beginning of the verse. For thus says Yahweh, who created the heavens. This, of course, is the distinction between the one true God and false gods. There are all kinds of so-called gods out there, but only one created all things. Only one God created everything that there is, and that's Yahweh. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. Formed and made. He's the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. And did not create it a waste place, but he formed it to be inhabited. What a good God. He didn't create it just as like a, I don't know, piece of art that hangs on the wall kind of thing. He created it to be inhabited with those made in his image among all the other creatures that he would be glorified as the one true God. That was his purpose. He says, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is none else. So again and again, it's this, it's this idea that there is but one God, and there is none other. That reminded me, that section reminded me of Revelation 4.11. This is what the 24 elders who worship him, they're casting their crowns before him, before the throne. This is what they're saying as a proclamation of praise in heaven. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. There was a time before creation where the only thing that existed was God, the triune God, the Father, Son, and Spirit dwelling in glory with one another before creation. That was John seventeen five. And there was nothing else. And then, by God's will, matter existed. Matter didn't exist before God and his will, but because of God's will, all things came into existence. Because of God's will, all things came into existence. And then, things were created. Isn't that amazing? Matter exists because of the will of God. Some of you, I'm sure, have been told that matter is eternal, 
We, of course, have the scientific principle that matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Um, And from a human perspective, that, of course, is very true. (laughs) We don't have the power of creation. If we were to say that uh, we were, you know, over all matter and we could create things and that we could become gods, God would just say, okay, well, we'll make something. Go ahead. Speak it into existence. By your will, bring it into existence and create it. (laughs) You may have heard the old joke where, uh, you know, a a scientist or somebody was saying, you know, given enough time, you know, we, we can we can create things. We can make things. We can bring things into existence. And, uh, you know, God says, okay, well, show me. And so he goes and he, he gathers a bunch of dirt and a, a bunch of other elements, and he sets it up in his laboratory in the perfect environment, and uh, he gets it all ready so that he can create a situation where there can be a, a bang or an evolution or, or something that would that would develop life and he could replicate what he believes happened. And he gets it all set up, and God says, wait, wait, wait. you you, you got to get your own dirt, <laughs> right? you you got to get your own elements. Your own, you got to speak your own laboratory into existence. You, you can't borrow from me. And that's all we can do, right? As creatures, we can only borrow what's been given to us by the Creator. And so if we were to get this false notion in our head that we can become gods, well, where did we get all that's around us. Where did we get the car you're, you're riding in or the room you're sitting in? Where did you get that breath that you just took and that heartbeat? It all comes from the one true God who made the heavens, who sits in the heavens and does whatever he pleases. He is the only true God and there is none other. And you will never, ever become him. That's the lie of Satan. Satan said, I'll make myself like the Most High. That was back in Isaiah 14. Well, how did that turn out for him? Not so well, right? One more passage in Isaiah. Sorry, got a little rambly and preacherly there. Isaiah 45, 21 to 25. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Now listen to his appeal. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Wow. So again, we get this theme. There is no other God besides Yahweh, the one true God, Turn to him, though, verse 22 says, the one true God, there is no other, turn to him and be saved. He has sworn by himself, it says in verse 23. And that's because, of course, he can swear by none higher. The book of Hebrews tells us about that. The word's gone forth from his mouth. He will not turn back. Here is what is being said. Here's what he swore to himself. 
that to me, God says, every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Well, if that sounds familiar to you, that's because that passage is in the New Testament. It's in Philippians chapter 2, where it talks about the greatness of Jesus Christ. It says that um, Christians are to have this attitude in themselves. This is verse 5. They're to have this attitude, which was also in Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, and remember, he was sharing in the glory with the Father, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped or held onto for selfish gain. Jesus, the one true God of the universe, because there's only one divine glory that is not shared with another by God, while the Father and the Son were sharing in that glory together because they are both the one true God. Well, although he existed in the form of God, he didn't hang on to that for selfish gain, but he emptied himself, verse 7, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Wow. So Jesus came and died, rose again, proving that he is who he said he was. And this is all leading to a time where every knee will bow, whether that's in faith or because that person has been judged in their unbelief. Ultimately, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that's essentially what we were reading about in Isaiah chapter 45, of course, the New Testament gives us more detail. But here it is. God says that he's sworn by himself that to him every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. And what else are they going to say? Verse 24, they will say of me, only in Yahweh, only in the Lord, are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who were angry at him will be put to shame. And in the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. I want to finish by just highlighting this phrase, what people are going to say as they bow the knee and swear allegiance with their tongues. They're going to say of God, only in him are righteousness and strength. And I want to close with this thought. I actually just wrote a... um, I don't have I don't have it handy. Um, I actually just wrote a little pamphlet on exaltation, asking the question: Can your own works, your ordinances, and your covenants exalt you? And it starts by walking through, you know, what the Bible has to say about exaltation, and, and part of that is Satan wanting to exalt himself. Isaiah fourteen, Isaiah was trying, or not Isaiah, Satan was seeking to become like the Most High. That's what it says in Isaiah 14. And so self-exaltation from the beginning is a satanic activity. 
And it says that in our natural state, this is going to Ephesians chapter 2, in our natural state, we follow Satan. That's what all people do by nature. They're children of wrath. They follow the prince of the power of the air. And uh, they're, they're by nature wrathful, following Satan. And it would make sense that if they're following Satan, what they're also seeking to do is exalt themselves, lift up themselves in their own eyes and in the eyes of their neighbors. They want to, people, they want to exalt themselves. Well, um, God has said that those who exalt themselves will be humbled, will be humiliated, will be abased. But the humble will be exalted. Now, now consider this. Those who try to exalt themselves, they're going to be taken down by God. Those who are actively seeking to exalt themselves, they will be destroyed. But those who come to God in humility will be exalted passively. That's Jesus's language. They will be exalted. They're not actively exalting themselves. They're receiving exaltation from without. They're receiving exaltation from another. And what the Bible talks about, what the Bible presents to us through the revelation of Jesus Christ, his incarnation, his life, his death, his resurrection, and through his apostles, what we learn is that Jesus gives us his righteousness. He became sin who knew no sin. He had no sin in him. He was not acquainted with sin in the way that we are as fallen human beings. He was not a fallen human being, but he became sin on our behalf. He was a curse for us. He was hanged on a tree in our place that we may become the righteousness of God in him. Second Corinthians 5.21. When we are found in Jesus Christ, all that he accomplished on our behalf is ours. In Colossians chapter 2, it talks about how in Christ we are circumcised. We're dead. We're alive. We're forgiven. We are, in fact, everything that Jesus has because we're co-heirs with him. Now, that doesn't make us gods. We'll never change our being, okay? We, we will always be creatures. But all that, that Jesus accomplished is accredited to us. All that... All of Jesus' merit is our merit, because when we believe, we are in him, and all that he has becomes ours. That's just for believers. So in our natural state, we're following Satan, but in our saved state, we have all that Jesus has transferred to our account. It's amazing. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, It says that Jesus Christ has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness. Jesus is our righteousness. In Romans chapter 3, it says, Now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God is revealed, that if we believe in the finished work of Jesus, that righteousness, it comes onto our account because we're justified by God. Not only are we forgiven of our sin, but we are credited with righteousness. In chapter 4, it talks about, this is Romans again, in Romans chapter 4, it says, if look, if Abraham would have worked really hard, he would have something to brag about. But he didn't. It says that he believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's from Genesis 15, 6. 
Because of Abraham's belief, righteousness came to his account. And it says, this is Romans chapter 4, verse 5, an amazing verse. Now to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Blessed is the man to whom God does not impute sin. And we can say, blessed is the man who has received from the Lord God's very own righteousness because of Jesus' work. And so how did I get here talking about Isaiah? Well, if we go back to Isaiah 45, 24, they will say of me, God says, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. We don't have righteousness from within that we bring to God and say, on this basis, exalt us. That is satanic. That is evil. That is wicked. That's rebellious. That's a rejection of who God is and how God has revealed himself. But instead, we come to God in humility and say, be merciful to me, a sinner, and God will exalt us. And in the Bible, this is really fascinating. God never separates salvation and exaltation. Some of you have been told that that everyone is saved, but to be exalted, there are ordinances to keep and there are works to perform. That is not biblical language. But instead, we see Ephesians chapter 2 again, these Ephesians who were children of wrath by nature, following Satan by nature, when they were saved because of the God who is rich in mercy, chapter 2 verse 6 of Ephesians says, In that salvation, they were seated, past tense, they were seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now, that's not to say that there's not coming a future time when Jesus will return and our bodies will be glorified and and we will physically actually reign with him. That's going to happen. But what the Apostle Paul is communicating there by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is that their exaltation is a done deal. Upon belief, they are immediately exalted to the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Now, you tell me, of course, I won't be able to hear you, but you tell me, (laughs) is it possible to be exalted higher than where Jesus is seated in the heavenly places? It's not. It's absolutely not. And so, I mean, this is just so critical. We have to recognize that righteousness is only found in Yahweh. And if we are going to be exalted, if we're going to be saved, it is going to be because he has exalted us with his righteousness. He has granted to us, he has transferred and credited to us his very own righteousness. And that is what gives us a status of innocence. That's what, that's what gives us a good standing before God is because we are his righteousness in Jesus Christ. So as you recognize what Scripture is saying, and I hope you do, that there is but one God, there is only one God, Yahweh. Besides him, there is no other. He knows not of any other God. Before him, there was no God, and after him, there will be no God formed. He is the only one. And yet before him, you are condemned. You're a sinner. How can you ever justify yourself before this holy and perfect judge? I hope you recognize that what Scripture is saying is that you don't look within yourself and find some merit from within because there's nothing there. You got nothing. There's nothing within you that God will look at and say, good enough. But instead, throw yourself onto the work of Jesus. Rely 
totally and completely for salvation and exaltation, which the Bible links together, rely totally on the work of Jesus, that the righteousness of God may come to your account because of your faith in him. That is the plea here. It's not just that God is the one true God and he's going to crush all of us, okay? That, that's not what Isaiah says. But God, through Isaiah, says there is no Savior besides him. This one true God, three persons, he has made himself Savior through the work of the Son and the Spirit, the Father's choice the Son's death and resurrection, the Spirit's coming in and regenerating and bringing life to these mortal bodies. What an amazing thing. That's the gospel. And and it's so much bigger, it's so much more wonderful, it's so much more beautiful than all the other false religions out there. The one true God has made himself Savior. Well, thank you for joining me for this extended edition of the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. I knew it would be a long episode, but I didn't... Well, I was going to say I didn't want to tell you at the beginning uh, because then you wouldn't listen. But I guess by the time this gets out and published, you know exactly how long it is before you download it. So thanks for listening if you've made it this far. Really appreciate you coming along. And I hope, again, that this is helpful. If there's anything else that I can do or say or touch on or clarify I want to know, reach out to me. I know there are several of you who listen to these uh, faithfully, and I I just hope that it's... um, productive, that this is a productive time, okay? I want to help you from the scriptures, because that's all I got, the Bible and Jesus. A lot of times people will come to our church and say, what are you guys all about? And we'll say, well, we got the Bible and we got Jesus. That's about it. We don't have performance. We'd be really bad if we tried. Uh, We just got Jesus and what he has said. So that's all I'm trying to do here, and uh, really, really hope that this has an impact on you. God bless.